welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. A short, 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 short week of cases. Have ye forsaken me, circuits? Don't worry, I've got things to discuss. And before getting to those cases, look out in your pod feeds for the next special episode dropping this coming Thursday. My interview with Andy Posner, CEO and founder of Capital Good Fund. Seriously, give it a listen. It'll help you get paid, fellow immigration attorneys. And for those non-citizen listeners out there, Andy and Capital Good Fund might just be the team that helps you fund your case and stay in the United States. Decide for yourself this Thursday. Now, let's talk crimmigration. The first case I want to discuss is Harbin v. Sessions, published by the Second Circuit way back when in 2017. Those of you who listen to me often may have detected a bit of a preference for crimmigration issues. I am who I am. A criminal. I'm just kidding. Maybe. But when I heard about this case at the Ayla South Florida conference, I downloaded it immediately to save and discuss on a week where there wouldn't be that many published circuit decisions. Who knew that that week would happen so soon? I also very much wanted to do this case, so it would appear in the podcast page's case outline with bulleted case summaries on the KKTP website, so you and I never forget about it. This case is about drugs in New York. Mr. Harbin was a longtime lawful permanent resident from Granada, but he committed a fair amount of crimes that made him removable from the United States. In immigration court proceedings, he applied for cancellation of removal for LPRs, asylum, and related relief. Most importantly here, one of those convictions was the 1991 felony conviction for criminal sale of a controlled substance in the fifth degree under New York Penal Law Section 220.31. The conviction documents show that the substance was cocaine, a drug that is listed in the Federal Controlled Substance Act list. 
Important to this decision, the immigration judge denied all claims for relief based on a finding that the conviction was an aggravated felony drug trafficking offense under INA Section 101A43B. An aggravated felony categorically precludes a non-citizen from obtaining any form of cancellation of removal or asylum. The IJ also denied withholding of removal and Convention Against Torture Protection on the merits. The BIA affirmed. But the Second Circuit did not. At least not on the aggravated felony stuff. Why else would I be reaching back over five years to do this decision? Come on, guys. The aggravated felony drug trafficking analysis, like most aggravated felony analyses, is governed entirely by the categorical approach. When it comes to drugs, that means that, among other things, the court must compare the list of drugs criminalized by the state, here in New York, to those listed in the Federal Controlled Substance Act at the time of the conviction. If at the time of conviction, New York criminalized the sale of more drugs than did the feds in the CSA, then Mr. Harbid's conviction is not categorically a drug trafficking aggravated felony. There are other elements required of drug trafficking aggravated felonies, but here the dispositive element is the drug comparison. So that is what we shall discuss. And wouldn't you know it, New York, at least in 1991, criminalized the sale and possession of chorionic gonadotropin. The federal government, in contrast, did not. For those wondering like I, Google tells me that chorionic gonadotropin is a hormone produced by the placenta during pregnancy. Apparently, in its drug form, it helps with conception and pregnancy. Makes sense, I guess. Couldn't possess it in New York in 1991. At least, I suppose, without a valid prescription, or of course, through natural production. Man, these cases sometimes turn on the weirdest of facts. That's why immigration is the best. Because of the inclusion of trafficking in this conception assistance, the New York statute is overbroad vis-a-vis the federal crime. New York covers more drugs, and thus, more crimes. Therefore, the inquiry ends unless the statute is divisible into separate offenses. Or as the Second Circuit put it, quote, A statute creating alternative elements and thus separate crimes is divisible. But a statute providing alternative means of committing a single crime is indivisible. End quote. Well said. That makes the criminal statutory text very important. Are the different drugs possessed or trafficked in New York elements, equating to separate crimes and making the offense divisible, or are they merely means? Here the text of the New York statute reads that, quote, a person is guilty of criminal sale of a controlled substance in the fifth degree when he knowingly and unlawfully sells a controlled substance. Criminal sale of a controlled substance in the fifth degree is a class D felony, end quote. What then is a controlled substance? Well, under New York Penal Law Section 220.005, it is, quote, any substance listed in Schedule 1, 2, 3, 4, or 5 of Section 3306 of the Public Health Law other than marijuana, but including concentrated cannabis, end quote. To the Second Circuit, this showed that New York drug trafficking, quote, creates only a single crime, but provides a number of different factual means by which that crime may be committed, end quote. That makes the statute indivisible. The Second Circuit reached this conclusion despite the New York statute's reference to those five different drug schedules, plus the exception for marijuana. No matter, 
For example, quote, the text does not suggest that a jury must agree on the particular substance sold, end quote. Different jurors could, for example, believe the substance heroin, cocaine, or chorionic gonadotropin, and still convict. That means that the identity of the drug is a means to convict, rather than an element required. Moreover, an analytical favorite of late, the penalty provisions similarly, quote, prescribe the same narrow range of penalties for violations, no matter which controlled substance a defendant has sold, end quote. That is, you don't get a higher sentence for trafficking in cocaine than you do for, say, chorionic gonadotropin. I'm going to say it so much that I'm going to be able to say this drug's name in my sleep. Nor do the New York State Court appellate decisions indicate divisibility to the Second Circuit. And listen up. It doesn't matter that in New York, quote, when a defendant is charged with selling controlled substances, prosecutors must describe the particular substances in question, end quote. Put another way, the prosecutors need to identify what drug was trafficked in the charging document, which kind of does indicate that the drug trafficked is an element. But to the Second Circuit, the reason for this requirement on prosecutors is to give the defendant fair notice and to avoid double jeopardy concerns. And those reasons, those concerns, are irrelevant to the divisibility analysis, said the Second Circuit. Doing things for reasons of giving fair notice and avoiding double jeopardy do not create elements. Remember it, I beg ye, especially in light of some recent BIA decisions, if I recall, making a bit of an opposite conclusion by in fact relying on double jeopardy concerns. That analysis would not appear to be good law in the Second Circuit. Continuing on with this case, other state court decisions quite clearly show non-divisibility. Convicting, for example, for simply possession of, quote, narcotics, end quote, generally. In light of all this, the Second Circuit decided to kind of ignore the New York jury instructions, which seemed to indicate a bit of divisibility. As the Second Circuit reads the Supreme Court's currently governing Mathis decision, quote, we should consult jury instructions only when we are otherwise uncertain regarding the state law's meaning, and there is no such uncertainty as to New York Penal Law Section 220.31, end quote. In addition to that, though, the relevant jury instructions would have been the ones used in Mr. Harbin's case in 1991, which were not present in the record. And plus plus, although the jury instructions do have a place for the jury to write what the drug the defendant specifically sold was, allowing a jury or, quote, judge to name the substance at issue in the case does not say it is impermissible to identify more than one substance. No rule of law or language requires that the terms specify cover only one object, end quote. That is, I guess, juries may be able to write in many substances, notwithstanding the fact that the jury instructions specifies that at least one substance be written in, according to the court. And so, we get to the conclusion in layman's terms and the reason I wanted so badly to summarize the case. As I read the decision, and unless New York has materially changed its laws since 1991, New York drug trafficking and likely drug possession are not removable or inadmissible offenses. At least where the removability inquiry turns on whether the crime matches the federal definition of a controlled substance, and the categorical approach is of course at play. And that seems like a pretty big holding to me. Of course, 
All of that means that Mr. Harbin was in fact eligible for LPR cancellation and asylum, meaning that the case needed to be sent back for an immigration judge to determine whether Mr. Harbin warranted that relief on the merits. Doesn't matter that he actually sold cocaine, as we all know. I wonder what happened, and I wonder what's up with Mr. Harbin today. Would love to know. Therefore, congratulations to Dorothy J. Spenner and a team at Sidley Austin, as well as many, many attorneys from the New York Legal Aid Society, on this win all those years ago. And that is Harbin v. Sessions. Other than that, and because it's a short week, all I've got is USA v. Brasby, published by the Third Circuit on February 23rd, 2023. This is also a criminal case in the sentence enhancement context. I don't feel the need to get into the logic too deeply, but want to make everybody aware of it, and of course, put down the case in the podcast outline. Because the decision involves the ever-evolving crime of violence mens rea standard most recently adjudicated by the Supreme Court in Borden. Recall, in Bourdain, the Supreme Court held that a crime, seemingly no matter how violent, cannot be classified as a sentence enhancement or immigration aggravated felony crime of violence if the crime permits conviction with a mental state of mere recklessness or less, like negligence or criminal negligence. However, in a footnote that I much lamented at the time, the Supreme Court left open the possibility that a criminal statute that permitted conviction through a mental state of above recklessness but less than knowledge, something like extreme recklessness perhaps, might cut it for a crime of violence. And wouldn't you know it, aggravated assault in violation of New Jersey statute annotated section 2C colon 12-1B1 can be committed recklessly, quote, under circumstances manifesting extreme indifference to the value of human life, end quote. What does that mean? To the Third Circuit, it means extreme recklessness. And that's what Mr. Brasby did. Now, in this decision, the Third Circuit ended up resolving the case against Mr. Brasby for reasons that have no effect on immigration law. The Third Circuit ruled against Mr. Brasby on other grounds. The court did not overturn its prior precedent and did not hold that aggravated assault in New Jersey satisfies the sentencing guidelines and therefore immigration crime of violence elements clause. But it made that extreme recklessness finding, and it sure indicated that if the issue came directly before it, it might be prepared to vacate its prior precedent in light of Vorden. Keep an eye out, New Jersey. It's a short week. Not for nothing, though. The court did say, for this New Jersey criminal statute at least, that, quote, mens rea generally is one element of an offense, and the specific mens rea is simply a means, end quote. That is, the fact that the statute of conviction lists three mental states of purposefully, knowingly, or extremely recklessly does not indicate divisibility vis-a-vis each mens rea. Those are just three separate means of committing the same offense, making the offense non-divisible on mental state. Seems like there may be a lot of crimes in New Jersey where mental state is not divisible. Put a pin in that. The crime of violence world remains one of the most complicated worlds in immigration. And if anyone's curious what U.S. citizen Mr. Brasby did that he is now getting his more recent conviction enhanced for, well... In 2005, he recklessly caused, quote, serious bodily injury to another person by utilizing a handgun to shoot the person four times in the back, end quote. 
extremely recklessly. And that is USA v. Brasby. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.